I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Markets are set to close out a strong first half of the year with the Nasdaq poised to notch its best first six months and get this, 40 years. Stocks are looking to finish on a strong note. A very different story for shares of Nike this morning. Under pressure ahead of the opening bell after the apparel giant notched its first earnings miss in three years. Fresh economic worries emerging out of China just days after leaders suggested stronger days are coming for the world power. Plus, getting back to work. Employees at a key Boeing supplier striking a deal to end an ongoing labor strike. And then Microsoft facing new regulatory scrutiny and pressure over its Activision takeover as it fights with the FTC. And that battle heads to a judge. It is Friday, June 30th, the last day of the first half of 2023. And you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. Welcome to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Dominic Chewin for Frank Holland on this Friday morning. Let's kick off the hour with a check on U.S. equity futures. And they're in the green, modestly so, but they're still green. The Dow Jones implied higher by 35 points. The S&P up by about 11 and the Nasdaq up by about 67. Now, stocks are set to wrap up the second quarter on a very strong note. Barring today's moves, the Dow and the S&P up two and a half, nearly nearly 7 percent, respectively, you can see there. The Nasdaq, though, running away with it, up about 11 percent on a quarter-to-date basis. This has been a very, very good quarter so far for stocks. Now, it's a similar story for the first half of the year. The Nasdaq is up nearly 30 percent. That is its best first half since 1983. The S&P also notching a strong six months, up 14 and a half percent. Its best first half since 2018. Remember, though, last year was a terrible year for the stock market, so we are working off a relatively low base. Checking the bond market right now, yields are, at least they've been trending somewhat higher as of late. They continue to move higher this morning. The 10-year benchmark Treasury note yield just a hair below 3.89%. The two-year note yield 4.93%, and the 30-year long bond 3.93%. In energy, A tough quarter and a first half for crude oil prices. Right now, you can see West Texas Intermediate, the U.S. benchmark price, is up about just about a full percent, $70.51. That $70 level is where we've been watching for quite some time now. Ice Brent crude futures, the world benchmark gauge, $75.19, up about 1% as well. Now, remember, WTI is on pace for its second negative quarter in a row. Brent is facing its fourth straight quarter of losses. Both are down around 13 percent or so so far this year, as you can see here. So oil prices have been under pressure. Let's get a check now on some of this morning's top corporate stories. Silvana Hinao is here with those. Good morning, Silvana. Hey, Dom. Good Friday morning to you, Dom. Uh, China's economic recovery continuing to show signs of stalling. Data revealing the country's factory activity for June contracted for a third month. Meanwhile, non-manufacturing activity came in at its weakest level since Beijing abandoned its strict zero-COVID policies late last year. The data coming days after China's premier said his country was still on track to reach its annual growth target of around 5%. 
Workers at a key Boeing supplier heading back to work after reaching a new labor deal. Roughly 6,000 union members at Spirit Aerosystems voting yesterday to approve a four-year contract. The deal at Spirit coming as Boeing prepares to step up production rates of its financially critical Max and Dreamliner planes. And Google saying it plans to block Canadian news on its platform in that country. The Alphabet-owned company saying it will remove links to the news pieces from search results and other products when a new law takes effect in about six months. Google joining Facebook and escalating a campaign against laws requiring payments to local news publishers, Dom. All right, Sylvain Hinao, thank you very much for those headlines. We'll see you later on. All right, back to the markets and results from the latest Delivering Alpha Investors Survey. Tapping into leading institutional investors, top strategists, and our own CNBC contributors, we asked them for their take on where the markets stand as we wrap up the first half of the year. 61% of those polled say we've entered a new bull market. 39% say this is just a bear market rally. For more, let's bring in Ivory Johnson, founder of Delancey Wealth Management. Uh, Let's kick it off with that same question, Ivory. Is this a bull market? Or is this just a bear market rally? I think it's a bear market rally. We, we have an inverted yield curve of about 100 basis points right now. Uh, you've got disinflation, which is continuing to accelerate. And that's just bad for, for corporate profits. Uh, I think what we've seen in, in the first half of the year, and again, I think we should pay attention to the full uh, investing cycle, which started November of 21, when GDP growth and inflation growth both started to decelerate. That has not changed. ISM for services is below 50. There isn't really any good news. What we have seen is an uptick in liquidity in the beginning of the year. So we have the Treasury General account that they used during a debt ceiling account. So they didn't issue any net new debt uh, in the first part of the year. That's why you saw liquidity go up. That's going to reverse itself. Uh, and so not only is the, the, the Treasury going to start pulling liquidity out of the market again, but you've also got student loan repayments that are going to start up again and the exhaustion of the business um, tax credits. So you're going to see liquidity come back down. My sense is that's going to be bearish for stocks. OK, so liquidity, liquidity was also a concern and, and perhaps even credit conditions a concern earlier this year when our country had the worst banking crisis it's had since the great financial crisis back in 2008, 2009. Right. The markets, Ivory, as you know and I know and everyone who listens or watches this program knows, shook it off in relatively short order. What does that then tell you about investor sentiment and how bad a fall could be if it were to happen? Well, I think I think a lot of investors suffer from short term um, return disorder, right, Um, because it hasn't really been completely addressed. Fifty percent of banks in America uh, have more liabilities and assets. What happened was the Fed came in and opened up the discount window and created liquidity for the held the maturity bonds. But but that might be a short-term issue. But a bigger concern is how do you refinance all these obligations coming due? 40% of U.S. debt has to get refinanced in the next two years. Uh, 25% of commercial real estate loans come due in the next in the next 12 months. Um, and, and then you also have the you know $1.4 trillion private debt market that they gave the small, these are loans given to small and mid-sized companies on adjustable rate loans. They haven't been marked to the market yet. And pensions own two-thirds of these these instruments. So I don't think we're out of the woods once you start looking at the refinance risk. Okay. And, and before we let you go, Ivory, 
your job is to manage wealth. You seem like you're a little bit more bearish, more conservative right now. It's you're not the only one out there. If that's the case, then then what are you doing? Are you raising cash? Are you selling stocks at this time? Are you looking at some of these bond yields and saying maybe there's something more attractive in the Treasury side or or even on credit? Yeah. So so, you know, instead of maybe being 60, 40, you might be 40, 60, but I'd have more gold. Uh, even though it's it's backed off a little bit, I think it's a buying opportunity. You can still get you know five percent in a money market fund, and and w- which is attractive if you consider that seven percent of the stocks in the S and P five hundred, seven stocks in the S and P five hundred are like ninety percent of the returns this year. So it's it's very it's not a broad based rally. Uh, we might find that money markets outperform a big portion of the S and P five hundred, uh, and then there might be some other opportunities. I'm looking at Japan's. Uh, economy continues to grow uh, on a rate of change basis, that might be an opportunity as well. All right. Opportunities on the defensive side in cash and gold, says Ivory Johnson. Thank you very much. Have a nice weekend, sir. Thank you. All right. A lot more to come here on Worldwide Exchange, including the one word that investors have to know today. Also digging into Nike's earnings, shares are under pressure on the back of those results from last night's close. Why your next guest says there's still plenty more upside potential for Nike. Plus, from Hollywood to ports across the U.S. and Canada, labor disputes are pushing workers to the picket lines. The role the rise of artificial intelligence is playing in all of it. And snatching up semiconductors, the CEO of one chip maker lays out the global race taking shape over these critical components. We've got a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this break. Welcome back. A check now on three stocks making their trading debuts in yesterday's session. Shares of Savers Value Village surging as much as 39% in Thursday's session. Kodiak and Fidelis Insurance stumbling in their debuts. Right now, Savers Value giving some of it back down about 1% of the pre-market trade. Kodiak Gas Services up about one-tenth of 1%. And Fidelis Insurance Holdings down about three-quarters of 1%. They all IPO'd yesterday. Turning back to this morning's big money mover here, it's Nike. Shares slipping ahead of the opening bell after the company beat fourth quarter revenue estimates, but missed on its full year profit expectations for the first time in three years due to lower margins. While a surge in China sales helped the sneaker giant on the revenue front, Nike offered muted guidance for both the year and the quarter ahead as it watches the broader economy, consumer behavior and retail trends overall. So let's dive deeper into the results with Brian Nagel, senior equity research analyst in retail hardlines and broadlines at Oppenheimer. You cover a lot of ground. Nike is a big deal. Just how worried should investors be, Brian, about the results that we just heard last night? Well, good morning. Um, you know, look, I'm, I, I, I've been obviously studying Nike overnight. We had the conference, we reported conference call yesterday evening. I want to say, I make it very clear. I, I think the I think a lot of us are getting this wrong. I think this is a, actually a quite solid report from Nike. I mean, this miss, yeah, you know, they, they technically did miss earnings by a couple of pennies in the fourth quarter. But if you look at the components of that, sales growth, margins, and other factors, they were very much in line. And importantly, you know, if you look at some of the really key uh, focuses of investors lately, growth in China. Inventory management, you know, on those metrics, Nike performed really well. So to answer your question, Dom, I think this was actually a solid report. I don't think it's a reason for concern. And I think it actually sets the stage 
for much better results at Nike over the next several quarters. Brian, are you concerned at all about th- there's been a lot of talk about the momentum or lack thereof with regard to Nike's DTC, that direct to consumer channel that it has. There has been a lot of focus on those results. What exactly do those results last night then tell you about whether or not Nike can find some kind of footing, so to speak, with regard to kind of ramping up the growth for DTC? Yeah, look, I think what's happening here, and we've seen this in New York, you mentioned in the opening, I I cover a lot of names. I I look across the consumer space broadly. And I think this post-pandemic dynamic within consumers has been quite interesting. What we're seeing is, is that as an economy, as we get back to normalized trends and normalized shopping patterns, your consumers have returned to stores. And I think some companies, including Nike, through the pandemic may have gotten too uh, focused, if you will, on DTC. Now, Nike's a great company, very well managed. They made the comment on their conference call last night that nothing's changed. You know, it's, it's just that they're, they're, they're looking at their consumer, they're where their consumer wants to be. And so you have seen, I think, relative to expectations, I think you have seen some retry, re, uh, return, if you will, to, to physical stores. But again, at the end of the day, as I think of the Nike business model going forward, DTC, direct, digital are all huge drivers here and are really going to be key components of the ongoing profitability improvements of the brand. Okay, so Brian, before we let you go, there's always a bit of a dynamic push-pull tug-of-war between direct-to-consumer and the retail channels it operates through. I think of Foot Locker. I think of other retail outlets. What exactly does Foot Locker and its commentary tell you about whether or not Nike is going to be much more focused on DTC or through some of its more traditional retail channels? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I want to make clear, I don't officially cover Foot Locker. You know, given my focus on Nike and others in the athleisure space, I watch Foot Locker closely. The point I'm making is, and I've, been, I've said this a lot lately, I think Foot Locker's problems are primarily Foot Locker's problems. If you look at companies like Dick's Sporting Goods, Academy Sports and Outdoors, also big wholesale partners for Nike, much different commentary. You know, there they're getting Nike product, they're getting more Nike product, they're getting better Nike product. So, look, I, I think what's happening here is Nike is getting smarter with how the company and the brand distributes its products. I think to a certain extent, Fort Locker has been a loser in, in, the, in, that, in that dynamic. But there are other companies, again, Dick's Sporting Goods, Academy Sports and Outdoors, who are very much benefiting from Nike getting smarter with how it distributes product. All right. Brian Nagel at Oppenheimer has an outperform on Nike shares. Thank you very much. Have a nice weekend, sir. Thank you. All right. Ahead on Worldwide Exchange, digging into what's in store for the markets in the second half of the year. We're out. We're, we're out delivering alpha or our delivering alpha, experts say. Investors will find the best opportunities. The second half playbook coming up. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. A new ripple in the ongoing wave of labor disputes is set to take effect. The Screen Actors Guild's contract agreement with the trade association representing Hollywood's film and TV production companies expires today. This as the ongoing writer's strike continues with no ends of no signs of ending, at least. Meanwhile, the union representing UPS workers is warning that a strike is imminent if the company does not come to the table with a significantly improved financial offer by today. And dock workers at West Coast Ports in Canada are poised to hit the picket lines as early as tomorrow after their union authorized a walkout as contract negotiations, by the way, that began back in March, continue to drag on. 
For more, let's bring in Jimmy Pentakoukis, American Enterprise Institute's economic policy analyst. He's also a CNBC contributor. We often turn, Jimmy, to you to help us sort through some of the economic trends. These are labor disputes. These are labor disputes with real-world economic impacts. What exactly do these stories, three separate ones, tell you about the current state of the economy and the strength of the worker? Well, the long-term trend with unions has not changed. It has been down. Last year, in fact, was a, it was a record low for union membership. So these stories pop up, and it seems as if that, you know, we're about to see a union revival uh, that has yet to happen. I think what's what's interesting about these stories, and, and in particular, I think the dock workers, which also has a, you know, which also has kind of a U.S. counterpart, which has been an ongoing issue, and what we're seeing in Hollywood is really the role of technology. I think what what's interesting here is if technology, in particular AI, if it's as important as technology as it looks like right now, how will workers react now that it's coming for sort of educated, upper-middle-class jobs and not just sort of, uh, you know, blue-collar industrial jobs. Now, if that's the case, there's no doubt that despite the soaring valuations, some would even characterize them as bubble-esque for for artificial intelligence companies and and the massive run-up we've seen. It's fair to say we're still in the early stages, right, of artificial intelligence, machine learning, that sort of thing. There's a there's a trend developing, though, where many of these jobs, many of these industries are going to get upended by things like artificial intelligence. How much does that play into some of the worker strife that's happening right now? I think specifically for the for the writers guild. Right. I I can't imagine AI writing a comedy I want to watch or listen to or see. I mean, some of these jobs have to be safe long term. Right. Yeah, I think I think first of all, I think you have people right now who read a lot of these scary stories. You know, you know, AI is going to take all the jobs. Uh, they're thinking about technology in a way they haven't before. They haven't really worried. So I think it's pretty understandable that they imagine just the sort of scenario that you that may currently seem unlikely, which is, uh, you know, you can just have a completely written movie or TV series by a few prompts. More likely, and this is something I've been writing about, you're going to also find people who who use these technologies to make themselves more efficient, uh, writers who use these to come up with ideas or maybe you know fle- flesh out a pitch. So we really don't know to the extent this is going to automate away jobs, complement jobs, create new jobs, though I think it's pretty understandable at this point for people to be, to be worried. I mean, that's only natural. This is just anecdotal. Uh, you know, I often go to fast food restaurants. I enjoy, you know, certain treats for myself. I've been encouraged by many of these restaurants to use the app to order ahead and then have the food waiting for me when I get there. I think to myself, there aren't that many more, you know, workers out there taking my order anymore. That's just one sliver of it. But how much bigger could that get over the course of the next, say, 10 to 20 years? How many of those, you know, call them minimum wage jobs, could really be affected in the next, say, decade or so. Right. Though, you know, jobs that require still, I think, a lot of, like, human contact and human relations. And in fact, though, some of those jobs may become more, more important, uh, you know, if they involve a lot of back and forth and dealing with, dealing with customers face-to-face. 
uh, where a lot of these AI advances are really more sort of these conceptual jobs. But my favorite example, of course, is is, is bank tellers. Listen, uh, we've had ATMs for a long time. When they first came out, people said, listen, bank tellers, not high wage jobs, are going away. Uh, there's more bank tellers now than when ATM started because it made it cheaper for uh, for banks to open up more branches. It may have been fewer tellers per branch, but more branches. I mean, I think that's a phenomenon we often forget about, which I imagine will continue to play out. All right. Jimmy Pethokoukis, always great to get your thoughts. Thank you very much. Have a nice holiday weekend, sir. Hey, thanks a lot, Don. Appreciate it. All right. Let's get a check on this morning's top headlines. NBC's Francis Rivera is in New York with the latest TGIF, Francis. You said it, TGIF, right there, Dom. We start with this landmark decision. The Supreme Court has voted six to three to strike down affirmative action, ending the longstanding consideration of race as a factor in the college admission process. The verdict came following a challenge to the policies of Harvard University and the University of North Carolina, brought by a group led by a conservative activist. A former school security officer got emotional at a Florida, as a Florida jury found him not guilty on all counts. Scott Peterson was facing seven counts, including ne- neglect of a child in connection to the 2018 Parkland mass shooting. Peterson did not confront the shooter who went on to kill 14 students and three staff members at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. He was forced to retire after the massacre. Two-thirds of Destiny's Child are giving a whole new meaning to the phrase hometown heroes. Beyonce and Kelly Rowland are paying it forward, helping to fund a permanent housing residence for the homeless in Houston, Texas. Officials there say the project will cost more than $8 million. A larger press event is scheduled for when Beyonce's Renaissance Tour makes its homecoming stop in September. For a Friday, Dom, those are your news headlines. We send it back to you. All right. Thank you very much, Francis Rivera. Now, as we head out to break, a check on shares of Virgin Galactic right now. You can see down about one half of one percent this after falling nearly 11 percent yesterday, despite the successful launch of its first commercial space flight. Speaking with Closing Bell Overtime after the launch, Virgin Galactic CEO stressed a strong financial strategy moving forward. We want to scale it. That's where we're going to drive the greatest return for our shareholders. And we believe the capital markets will be available at whatever need we have for that. But if we find the capital markets are tight, we can always bring back uh, the pace at the fleet scaling and manage our balance sheet that way. All right, we are just at about 5.30 a.m. in New York, and there is still a lot here on Worldwide Exchange. So here's what's still on deck. Stocks set to close out a stellar first half with the Nasdaq looking at its strongest first six months since Return of the Jedi topped the box office. We're already getting set for the next six months for the markets and where top institutional investors and strategists say the best opportunities for your money are. And Microsoft facing new pressure over its bid to buy Activision Blizzard as the FTC's legal proceedings on the matter wrap up. It is Friday, June 30th, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to the show. I'm Dominic Chewin for Frank Holland this morning. Let's pick up the half hour with a check on U.S. equity futures, which are green, modestly so, but they're still green. The Dow's implied higher by just about 64 points, the S&P higher by 15, and the Nasdaq implied higher by roughly 75 Stocks are set to wrap up the second quarter and the first half of the year on a strong note. Now, barring today's moves, the Dow and the S&P up two and a half and nearly seven percent. But the Nasdaq is running away with it, up about 11 percent just on a quarter to date basis. 
a similar story for the first half of the year. The Nasdaq is up a whopping 30 percent. It's best first half of the year since 1983. The S&P is also notching a strong six months, up 14 and a half percent. It's best first half since 2018. But remember, it was a really bad year last year. So maybe the rally just getting some of that back. Let's dig deeper to the market action for the first half of the year so far. I mentioned before the relative strength of the S&P 500. I want to show it to you again, year to date up about 14, 15 percent in relation to the 200 day moving average or the longer term trend line. Right now, we are currently just about 10 percent above that 200 day moving average. So well above where it trades on average over that rolling basis. Take a look at the best performing sector in the S&P 500. That's technology. The technology sector spider right now up 38 percent, we said. But here's the orange line, 200 day moving average right now. This gap is around 23 percent. That's a huge extension over its long term trend line. And if you're wondering what stock has been powering the whole thing, it hasn't been so much Apple, although it's pushing that three trillion mark. It has been NVIDIA semiconductors and that artificial intelligence narrative has now pushed NVIDIA to roughly 83 percent above its long term trend line. So there is some talk about whether or not this market is overextended. That's the reason why some people look at the technology sector and they look at NVIDIA specifically and say, can this keep going or is a correction due? Now, with those market moves in mind, let's look deeper into the crystal ball for the insight on the second half of the year. We'll bring in Gina Sanchez, the CEO of Chantico Global, also a CNBC contributor. Also, Elsa Linos, the global head of strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Ladies, both, thank you for being here. I Maybe I'll start with you, Gina. I just laid out the stocks picture for why some people feel a little bit less comfortable about the markets and valuation right now. Is this a second half of the year that can at least stay positive or have we just gone too far too fast? Well, there are two different stories to, to, to tell. There's a story about the consumer and the fact that there is still wage growth and inflation is falling. Um, there's that story. And then there is that AI story that you're talking about. And that's the one that I think that probably gives people the most discomfort, um, because what we know is that we tend to uh, buy into these stories, expect a lot very quickly, and then it doesn't come as quickly as possible. And then we have a sell off. And so I think that's probably the story that we're going to see with AI, which is that, you know, something that has been in the works for years now, literally a decade, is now come to market and everybody thinks that it's going to change their lives tomorrow. And it's probably going to change their lives over the next 10 years. But we've bought into it thinking that it's all going to happen tomorrow. So, so uh, Elsa, this is an interesting point of view right now that, that many of these, these things are happening amid a macro backdrop that isn't the most bullish out there, but hasn't really been that bad. We've been trying to talk about a recession for the better part of a year plus at this point. Are we in a stage right now where the companies that operate in these economies, developed market economies, can feel good about where the economic situation is? If it's feeling good or not feeling so bad, you know, as you said, people were calling for a recession at the start of the year. Many were expecting it to happen in the first half of the year. Clearly, that's not panned out. And as time wears on, people just keep pushing back those recession expectations. But as Gina said, the consumer is in a pretty decent spot at the moment. Wage growth is still firm. 
headline inflation has actually come down a fair bit. Core is a lot stickier than central banks would like. But all in all, the macro picture doesn't look too terrible right now. Okay, so the latest delivering alpha survey is out today where we gather kind of market intelligence from the top institutional investors out there, strategists, some of our own contributors like Gina. Among the topics, where will the best returns lie for the rest of the year? It's almost evenly split among short-term treasuries, the S&P 500, foreign stock markets. You can see they're all roughly about a quarter of respondents think that foreign stocks, the S&P, and short-term treasuries are the place to be. Not many people think it's going to be the NASDAQ 100 or oil prices overall. Gina, does that kind of click with what your feeling is right now? Do you feel as though the stock market is still the place to be or is it short term treasuries? They're kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum. You know, we've actually had a very, very boring recommendation, which is just a balanced portfolio. And part of the reason is because, you know, you know, like like your other guest said, people have been expecting a recession. It hasn't come. We've been pushing it out to next year. Um, we've been moderating what we think it's going to be. Now it's going to be shallow. Then it was a growth recession. Now it's just going to be a mild slowdown. Um, and, and so, you know, the outlook is not as negative as we thought, but we know we have some extension in the markets in some parts of the market. So there are definitely parts of this market that are overextended. Um, but, but the problem is, is that the risks outweigh the, the, the sort of the, the risk, the upside risks are about balanced with the downside risks. So in absent, absent kind of new information, you have to keep market exposure in a diversified portfolio. We're not wildly overweight in any space right now because it is hard to make bets at the moment. Okay, Elsa, if you take a look at the way that interest rates have shaped up for places like the U.S., the U.K., Europe, you know, I'll leave Japan maybe out of it. They're not, not, they're not exactly kind of like what's happening with the U.S. and the U.K. Is there an opportunity right now with regard to sovereign bonds in, in many of these developed markets Given where we see currencies trading right now, is it still the U.S. dollar? Are there better opportunities in, say, the U.K. or the eurozone? So I would actually take the opposite view there. The reason being as follows. If you rewind back to the tail end of last year, there was a huge degree of pessimism surrounding the euro area. At the time, I think analysts were looking for roughly 90 percent probability of a recession in the upcoming 12 months. And that hasn't panned out for a number of reasons. And first, there was the optimism around China reopening. That definitely hasn't played out, but that quickly pivoted to lower energy prices, to um, enthusiasm around the economic data in Europe. And now that probability of recession has dropped all the way down to 40%. People are actually more positive on the economic prospects for the euro area than they are for the US. That to me seems wrong. And so going into the second half of the year, I still think the US in relative terms is going to do better than the UK or the euro area. And at the margin, that should be supportive for the currency. All right. There's the macro picture from Elsa Linos, also the stocks picture from Gina Sanchez. Thank you, ladies, both. I hope you enjoy your weekends. Now let's get a check on some of this morning's top corporate stories. Silvana is now is back with those. Hi, Silvana. Hey, Dom. Good morning. I'm back. All right. Let's start with the U.S. is reportedly ramping up warnings to American executives about fresh dangers about doing business in China under an amended law. 
Now, there to combat espionage, the Wall Street Journal says the National Counterintelligence and Security Center has released a bulletin warning that the revised law is vague about what constitutes as espionage and gives the Chinese government greater access to and control over companies' data, potentially turning what would be considered normal business activities into criminal acts. Canada's Department of Justice concluding that Microsoft's deal to buy Activision Blizzard is likely to lead to less competition in some aspects of gaming amid ongoing court hearings scrutinizing the potential acquisition. Reuters reporting that the letter, which was sent to Microsoft's lawyers this week, was put on the docket of the FTC's court. Proceedings yesterday as Microsoft continues to press for a decision before the July 18th termination date. And Bed Bath & Beyond has selected baby goods company Dream On Me Industries as the initial winner of an auction for the bankrupt retailer's Bye Bye Baby brand with the hope that a higher bid might emerge to keep the brand stores alive. This, according to court papers, the terms of Dreams on Me's bid have not yet been disclosed, and Bed Bath & Beyond has extended the deadline for the ongoing auction to July 7th, Dom. All right, that's just next week, Silvana. Yes. Thank you very much for the Bye Bye Baby update. Well, coming up on the show, the CEO of one semiconductor maker being taken private by a fund with ties to the Japanese government lays out what deals like that could mean for the growing global race for computer chips. Worldwide Exchange is back after this commercial break. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your morning call sheet where we check on a few of the morning's biggest upgrades and downgrades by firms you know and stocks you likely own. First of all, Jefferies is raising its rating on Carnival from hold to buy. It cites structural changes under the travel company's new CEO as well as improvements in revenue drivers for the bump up there. Those Carnival shares up, by the way, up 3% in pre-market trade. And then BMO Capital Markets raising its rating on first service to outperform and increasing its price target to 176 bucks a share. It says first service is well positioned for long-term growth and is well positioned against the prospects of a weakening macroeconomic picture. Those first service shares now just about unchanged in the pre-market trade. Time now for your global briefing. China's factory activity contracted for the third straight month, while non-manufacturing activity came in at its weakest level since Beijing abandoned its strict zero-COVID policies late last year. Inflation in the eurozone eased more than expected in June, with the consumer price index coming in at 5.5%. That's down from just over 6% back in May. Driving the rate lower was a drop in energy prices, the core rate, by the way, did rise slightly. And the Dutch government has introduced new rules restricting exports of certain advanced semiconductor equipment amid U.S. pressure on its allies to curb sales of high-tech components to who else? China. The rules will require companies making advanced chip-making equipment to seek a license before they can export it, and they are expected to go into effect September 1st. And that is your global briefing. Now, sticking with semiconductors as the global race for leadership in that industry accelerates outside of the U.S., the majority of competition comes from countries like South Korea, Taiwan and Japan, like you can see here, which was once, by the way, the world's largest semiconductor producer, accounting for over 50 percent of global production. Japan now making some fresh moves in the space with the Japanese Investment Corporation, a fund backed by the country's government proposing to buy chip company JSR, 
buy it for more than $6 billion. The potential purchase of JSR, which is a major company in the photo resistance area, comes as countries look to secure their own supply chains and build domestic chip industries. We're even doing it here in America. So joining me now for more is Eric Johnson, the CEO of JSR. Eric, this almost seems like it's a government takeover. Is it or is it not? Right. Yeah, I'm glad you started with that because it absolutely is not. Uh, JIC, as you commented, is an investment arm and they're backed by the Japanese government, but their mission is economic. What they're looking to do is enhance competitiveness of the Japanese economy. And they're targeting a couple of sectors, primarily uh, semiconductors, uh, semiconductor materials, and biopharmaceuticals. And those happen to be the sectors that we're primarily in. This is something where you can almost see a trend developing, right? Uh, This deal for, for your company... We've also got the CHIPS Act here in America, which was a massive amount of money to be spent on trying to shore up the U.S.'s domestic chip design and production capabilities. Do you feel as though this is going to be something strategic where the next arms race is about semiconductors and technology and that governments will be either directly or through investment arms investing in some of these key industries? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're seeing this, as you noted, globally. Uh, and in our case here in Japan, the material science base is, is very strong. And as we noted, the semiconductor materials are particularly strong. Um, but there are a lot of us in this space. And right now, it's a real strength, obviously, for JSR and also for Japanese industry. But the point is whether or not this is sustainable. Uh, and so that's really the, the point of our partnering with JIC is to accelerate what we consider to be an already really strong business model, but also to support a sector of the Japanese economy, which is strategically very important. If that strategic importance is there for Japan, it's also there for other countries as well. I can think of specifically the U.S., the U.K., the Netherlands and, of course, South Korea some, and, and, and Taiwan, for sure. I mean, these are some of the big kind of computer chip hubs around the world. What exactly is the outlook for many of these countries? Do you think, do you feel as though these countries will be even more forceful with the way that they approach some of these strategic elements around computer chips going forward? Yeah, I think it's, it's important to differentiate here an economic drive and some kind of political agenda. In our case, this is pure economics, right? We're trying to enhance the competitiveness, both of us and this space. There's a different discussion on the importance of having semiconductor capability within each of these different countries. And I think you're seeing investment to support that. But the reality is no one country is going to be able to be self-sufficient. You're going to have to be able to support your strengths where you can but you're also going to have to rely on kind of the global connectedness uh, in the long run. All right. Eric Johnson, uh, CEO of JSR, with that big news there. Uh, Please come back and tell us about how things are going and and how you think the chip space is going to evolve. 
We wish you a nice weekend, sir. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. All right. As we head out to break, June is Pride Month and CNBC is celebrating all month long. Here is Bank of America head of digital, Nikki Katz. You never know what someone experienced that morning before they showed up to work or what they're dealing with in their personal life. So when we all show up to work, we should do so with grace and with compassion for one another. Even now in 2023, the struggle for our LGBTQ plus teammates, family members and friends continues to be very real. It's important to take a moment during Pride Month, but frankly all year round, to celebrate the victories and show our support for the ongoing struggle. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for what we like to call your WEX wrap-up, some stories that you may have missed before the opening bell. Chinese fast fashion giant Xi'an telling CNBC it denies a Reuters report that it has confidentially filed for an IPO in the U.S. and that it would list before it would happen by the end of the year. Workers at a key Boeing supplier heading back to work after reaching a new labor deal. Roughly 6,000 union members at Spirit Aerosystems voting to approve a new four-year contract. Reuters reporting Goldman Sachs board nominating former Bank of America executive Tom Montag to join as an independent director. The group recommended Montag to participate on the audit, risk and corporate governance and nominating committees. Shares of Pfizer are ticking higher on reports the European Commission has contracted the company to and other drug makers to reserve capacity to make up to 325 million vaccines per year in case a future global health emergency were to emerge. Well, the latest Delivering Alpha investor survey is out today. We asked institutional investors, top strategists, and our own CNBC contributors about their outlooks on which areas of the market they'll be most focused on going into the third quarter. It was pretty evenly split at 29% between healthcare and then mega cap technology stocks. High dividend paying stocks followed at 18%, and then 12% said that they're looking at consumer staples companies. Let's get the view now from Courtney Garcia, senior wealth advisor at Payne Capital Management. She's also a CNBC contributor, often seen on Fast Money. Courtney, thank you very much for being here. The survey lays out some interesting themes. Do you feel as though it's still about mega cap technology or can other defensive sectors take a foothold in the third quarter? Yeah, actually, that um, well, you just put out there actually surprised me a little bit still that so many institutional investors are looking at mega cap techs after they've had such a run this year and the valuations are getting so high. Um, and I do actually, I mean, surveys are showing institutional investors are still reaching there. Um, but I would actually argue that you want to look at other areas of the market right now. I think there's plenty of opportunity here, especially when you look at things like industrials. There is a big trend that's happening with onshoring right now and industrial spending that I think is likely going to have a longer term upswing trend here. It's a lot cheaper valuations right now. Um, We still like things like international and emerging markets. You definitely want to be in those mega cap techs, but I would not be overweighting those right now after they had such a strong run. Okay, we've seen some of the talk now about this recession. We've, We've addressed it with other guests earlier in the show We've been and you and we've been talking about it for a while. You've been talking about it for a while. This notion that is there going to be a recession or is there not? It's been the better part of a year now. Plus, how should investors be positioned for the second half of the year? Knowing, by the way, Courtney, what happened last year, it was a bloodbath that the rally that we've seen so far. Is it going to be a bear market rally this time around? Or are we simply put still going to be in a bull market phase for the rest of the year? 
we're definitely optimistic we can still be in a bull market here. This has been the most anticipated recession of all time that may not even happen. And the economy is still in a lot better place than people realize. The consumer is still spending. Wages are still rising. Inflation's coming down. Earnings actually continue to get revised upwards or um, earnings expectations. And I think really a lot of even the bears are becoming less bearish, which is pretty interesting here. So, you know, I think a lot of people too are saying, eh, I've missed out on this rally. The market's already significantly higher since October. We're still well off the highs of last year. The markets still have a ways to recover. And I think as an investor, you do want to make sure you are still invested. You are going to take advantage of this upswing because, you know, it's going to be this wall of worry. I think that's what you're seeing It's the hardest times to be an investor is often the best times to be an investor. I think that's what you want to do here. But again, we've seen this huge concentration in all your basically seven companies, which is your big tech firms that have been leading the market. Just be cautious. Don't be overweight in that. Don't chase that upward swing. You want to be invested more broadly right now. Courtney, we've just got a few moments left here. Is the consumer spending picture and the strength there going to still be tilted towards services, travel, leisure, dining out and leaving behind things like good spending? I think it'll it'll lean that direction, but I think you'll probably see good spending actually start to normalize as you get just more normal past pre-COVID levels. Um, so I think probably later in the year, you'll see, start to see that tick up. But yes, in the meantime, it's definitely going to be more services. All right. Courtney Garcia, Payne Capital, thank you very much. Have a nice weekend. Thanks for having me, Dom. All right. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box is picking up the market co- coverage coming up next. Futures are modestly higher. We'll see if they stay that way. Have a nice weekend. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC.